Hey everybody, Ray Lucchese here with Keith Townsend. Welcome to another sponsored episode of the Greybeards on Storage podcast, a show where we get Greybeards bloggers together with storage assistant vendors to discuss upcoming products, technologies, and trends affecting the data center today. We have with us here today, Dustin Leverman, group leader for HPC Storage at Oak Ridge National Labs. So Dustin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what's what the labs is doing with uh, storage these days? Yeah, so um, yeah, like you mentioned, I'm the group leader for storage and archive actually. Uh, so we, um, basically what my role is, is to make sure that, you know, based on our user use cases, that we're able to achieve those with um, both our scratch storage, which we define as, um, storage that's connected to our compute resources, but is basically built for comfort, not for speed. Um, and then we define our um, archival storage as, um, I guess traditionally you would define archival storage as write once, read never, um, but we actually treat ours more like a, um, just kind of a long-term store. So there's usually like a robust policy engine um, that exists between, um, you know, two different tiers, like a disc tier and a tape tier. And we, um, you know, we try to meet our, from a project level basis, you know, we try to meet our users use cases on if they're trying to actually write once, read never, or, um, if they have, they need to be, have more interactive performance. One thing, as I was, uh, reading about, uh, Orion, which I guess is your, uh, your storage environment, I guess I'd call it, is the size of the data load, the data corpus that your guys are dealing with. I think it was something on the order of hundreds of petabytes. 700 roughly it's 688.7 700 petabytes is quite a lot of data to be throwing around here and and you mentioned comfort store i i saw something about um i guess the multiple tiers that you have for this uh storage environment you want to talk a little bit about that dustin sure so orion is the, uh, like I mentioned before, the difference between Scratch and Archive. Orion is our Scratch file system uh, for the Frontier supercomputer. Now, it's it's not dedicated storage to Frontier. It's mounted by um, other systems on the periphery of the center, uh, but Frontier is the, um, the main system. Uh, so like you mentioned, it's a multi-tier system. Um, the three tiers are, it, usually you wouldn't mention a metadata tier. It's just meant for metadata. But in the case of Orion, we actually uh, use a feature of Lustre, the file system for Orion. Uh, we use a feature called data on metadata. Um, so basically you can choose how much of the big, of a, of the different component of a file you want to have stored in metadata. Um, like, so like the first um, bytes or something like that, or? Yeah. So what, so basically what that does is you can specify a size. So let's say that um, I have a, let's say that I had a good understanding of um, our file size distribution. You know, if we know that we have lots of files that are, let's say 64K or below, which really takes up very little data on the system, um, you can specify a DOM data on metadata size of 64K, where basically what that will do is under the hood, when a client is trying to request data, it will talk to the metadata server first, and then um, you know the metadata server will direct it to a, a a server that actually has the data. But when you have really small files, that creates a bunch of extra overhead. So this data on metadata feature allows the metadata server basically to just return the data to those clients instead of having um, those clients have to go reach out to other servers. So, so really, so, the advantage is oh, go ahead. Yeah, so the data is sitting on the metadata tier rather than on the 
storage tier, I guess, or, or exactly. one of the storage tiers. Oh, that's interesting. That way you get around the small file uh, <laughs> challenge, right? Exactly. And actually, I mentioned 64K. That actually, um, we we set our DOM size to 256K, um, just because when we look at our file size distribution, uh, there's there's interesting things that happen, um, you know, in the one, two, four megabyte range, um, the uh, and the 64K range, like in that in those areas. So basically, we tried to pick uh, that component size to to get as much of the of our small files in flash as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, there is a flash tier as well. I, I believe it's NVMe storage as well. It is. Yes. So we have um, we actually have 10 petabytes of metadata storage. <laughs> Um, we have an additional 11 petabytes of NVMe storage um, that's, uh, like like I've just mentioned, you know, our DOM size is 256K. Um, and then basically from 256K up to 8 megabytes, um, the components, all the components of every file um, live in Flash up to 8 megabytes. Um, and, you know, like I mentioned, our we have this bimodal file size distribution. So... Um, with that that allows a you know high IOPS for small files. So when you say components of files, so let's say I have a I don't know hundred megabyte file and um, eight megabytes of it would be, you know like the hottest data or like the first data or some sort of a sequential uh, moving uh, filter of it or how, how would that work? So how do you actually, decide? Or how does the system decide what goes into the flash tier versus? I guess disk, right? Great question. Uh, so Luster, the file system I just mentioned, um, it has a feature called progressive file layouts, which was actually developed at Oak Ridge. Um, and what, what that feature does is it allows you to, as the file's being written, um, it allows you to specify different, essentially components or rules for as the file grows, what happens. Um, so what, like, like I mentioned, you know, you have the first 256K on metadata, the next uh, up to a megabyte on flash. And then after that, all of that additional data starts getting written to the, the hard drive tier. And, uh, you know, like doing the math, I just mentioned, you know, we have 21 petabytes of flash, but it's a 688 petabyte file system. Um, so there's a very significant, the rest of that capacity is all in our, um, our disk tier. So it's not a what I would call like a, a hot uh, data tier as much as it's uh, you know the first uh, first two hundred fifty six is in metadata the next megabyte or so is sitting in flash and and the following however many megabytes are sitting on disk is that how it's split out then? That, that's exactly how it works. Yeah, and we actually did consider the model where essentially you have a hot tier and we would use a policy engine to move data between the hot tier and the cold tier. Um, the disadvantage with that is that uh, either users will, I mean, you can't afford, I mean, we couldn't afford 688 petabytes of, of flash, right? That would be uh, prohibitively expensive. Um, <laughs> so we so we had to make a choice of what we do. And, um, you know, if we placed all data on the performance tier, there'd be risk to that tier fi filling up, right? Or users abusing it, um, or the policy engine that migrates the data not being able to keep up where this progressive file layouts um, technique that allows us basically to provide um, deterministic performance for individual files for our users um, and eliminates the risks of tiers filling up. Right, 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 right. I was gonna ask, how do you back up 688.7 petabytes? 
<laughs> Great question. Um, so we, uh, one of our, one of the things we operate under, and one of the ideas we operate under is that we shouldn't back everything up. Um, basically, users need to make a conscious decision whether or not something is worth keeping forever, right? Oh, okay. um, I know that some places, you you know, you like in a home directory, you probably want to always back up everything in your home directory, but home directories are relatively small. Um, like we have single jobs on our system that could write 80 petabytes of data in a single run. And that's, you know, that would also be prohibitively expensive to back up. And so sometimes you care about the breadcrumbs of how you got to the result. And sometimes you just care about the result. Um, so, the, and the users know what, what's important and they can back things up accordingly. And so, like I mentioned before, we have our um, archival systems. Um, and in, in our case, you know, today we have, we have two archival systems for different security zones. Um, one of them is uh, uses HPSS and the other one uses Spectrum Archive. Um, but basically users will use um, Globus, the data, we have a data transfer cluster that has, uh, that uses the Globus data transfer tool. Right. And the expectation is that they would use Globus to transfer data between Scratch and Archive. Oh, okay. So I'm looking at the website. One, it's impressive. You have a role of IBM Z systems and it, it, uh, it, it, it is it's helping me wrap my head around these huge numbers. As you think about the amount of data you have and the compute needed to address it, there are aspects of this scale that I still am having a little bit of trouble with. And one of the obvious things is networking. Where, where are the clients coming from that's accessing all of this data? So we, so like I mentioned, Orion has um, is uh, is primarily for Frontier, and so really you have to make decisions on where the system lives in your center to de to determine where you need the performance, right? So um, between Frontier and Orion, um, the performance tier is able to achieve you know ten terabytes a second. So basically, that's <laughs> that's four hundred and fifty servers with two two hundred gigabit per second links each. That's that would be if 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 those lived on different networks, you couldn't afford to connect them. Like the amount of switch gear and hosts to route that traffic between two different networks would be, you know, millions of dollars. Um, so what we do is um, basically based on these high throughput requirements, Frontier Orion actually lives on Frontier's um, HSN. You know, that's it's high speed network that it uses uh, for MPI traffic um, and. So that allows us to have that throughput where peripheral systems like an analysis cluster or data transfer cluster, you know, those only need, um, you know, hundreds of gigabytes per second. So we have a set of routers that route traffic. Um, there's 160 routers that route traffic between Frontier's Slingshot network and our, um, we call it Scion. It's our scalable IO network. Essentially, it's our SAN. Um, but all of these peripheral systems connect to the SAN to access the file system. But that traffic is routed. Yeah, I love the concept that only need the peripheral systems only need hundreds of gigabytes per yeah, second. It's a ten terabytes of data <laughs> bandwidth per second, right? I mean, that's the, that's the number you're throwing around, Dustin. Well, well, actually, that was the requirement in our contract with HPE. We actually can do eleven terabytes a second uh, write and fourteen terabytes a second read from Frontier. I'm trying to write this down. This is this is phenomenal. So, right, just so you know, we're recording this. So, you oh yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I understand so, that. No, even so for this conversation, because I'm still trying to wrap my head around 
these numbers and kind of what's needed to support it. Like you, 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 you know, we kind of casually threw around the concept that there's a 10 petabyte uh, meta of metadata. That's a pretty (laughs) impressive database by itself. Like that's, that's like the amount of optimization that needs to go into it. And this is a file system that we're talking about. So seamlessly the, uh, your data scientists who are connecting to this are just using standard NFS type protocols, I'm assuming. And there's all of this magic happening on the back end to make it seem like they're just using this really basic transfer protocol, but there's a lot going on behind the scenes. Uh, so, so Lester would have a client, right? It's not a, right. it's not like an yeah. NFS solution. But it does give it, the Luster client gives it POSIX like access to right. the um, shared right. file system. Yeah. Similar to NFS, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Talk about talk about this metadata system here. I, yeah, but it's it's like a one hell of a key value store. Is that what it is, or or is this something that Luster is putting together? Or are you guys doing some special work here, or what? So basically, what Luster does under the hood is it takes a bunch of file systems and then it has a metadata subsystem that ties it all together, right? So when you go to write a file to Luster it'll create an inode that will have a metadata entry for that file. And it will say, you know, depending on how you set up the, depending on how you configure that file, you know, how big of stripes do you want? How many stripes do you want? What's pool or tier do you want to be writing to? Um, You know, you can make, like I mentioned before, the progressive file layout that can um, tune this for you. So users don't have to have to have all that system knowledge. Um, But basically when you go to write this file, you know, it, it'll, you create an inode for it and it will say where all of the different data blocks are um are mapped to but like i mentioned too this this new feature data on metadata allows you to tune how much data is actually written on the metadata target as well um it's not in the inode um it's not data in inode but um it yeah it, it, it makes us be able to utilize such a large amount of metadata space but really the goal of it is not to accelerate the uh the file IO necessarily. Um, that's one of the side the side effects of, of keeping data on metadata. What it really does is it makes it so for small files, you're not having to do an extra network hop. So it's keeping a bunch of those, that traffic off of the network. And it also does want another side effect is since the, the metadata is is flash, it stops a lot of these very small IO transactions from hitting hard disks, which are mechanical devices and would have to seek the drive. So it does accelerate the files in that way as well. So yeah, so on disk you're writing, I don't know, a stripe would might be what uh, a megabyte or or that, that actually is our stripe width. Yeah, one megabyte. It is? Okay. Yeah. So that makes it a little bit easier to to spin out uh, on disk and stuff like that uh, with the throughput. So you're still talking, uh, you know, 688 petabytes. So 20 petabytes of metadata and, and a flash tier. You're still talking 660, 70 petabytes of disk, right? Exactly. And that's over thousands of disks. So either, and the disks are effectively attached to, I'll call it storage servers. Yes. Yeah. So they, um, Luster is, has building blocks, right? You have MDSs, metadata servers. And you have OSS's uh, object storage servers, um, and you know each each of them have data targets like a metadata target MDT or an object storage target an OST that lives on the OSS. So, in the case of Orion, Orion has um, two hundred 
uh, I'm sorry, 450 um, object storage servers. And each one has one flash storage target and two disk storage targets. Um, and so, you know, like the, the individual, I mean, but across those 450 servers, um, there are, uh, it's, I mean, I'm doing the math right now. Um, there are 47,750 like flash drives, something like that. It's, it's there's 24 flash drives and 212 18 terabyte drives. So doing the math, it works out to a, a little over 47,000, uh, 18 terabyte hard drives. And, um, it's, I think it's 5,400, roughly 3.84 terabyte NVMEs. So I'm going to ask the obvious operations question. How do you monitor that many hard drives? There's Great question. Be some problems cropping up occasionally and stuff like that. At any given time, there's a failed drive. Um, and so, and, and as you would probably guess, when you're in the time that you spend um, having a failed drive introduces risk for data loss, right? With when you use RAID. Um, so we, you know, we use a ZFS DRAID and um, it can, we DRAID 2 to be specific. And so that allows us to have, uh, you know, eight data blocks and two parity blocks, um, but we also have two spare drives in each one of our pools. So um, not, not spare drive, spare capacity, I guess, inside of our pools. Um, and so what we do is, um, you know, since we expect that, that any drive can be failed at any time, Luster has a feature with, that will um, mark that drive, uh, mark that pool as degraded and will deprioritize IO to it um, so that you're not, that when users are writing, let's say they have a huge job um, that's writing a lot of data all at once, you know, you don't want the metadata server to be writing new data to this pool that's being rebuilt. So it'll try to avoid it, try to make it so you're not being blocked on this um, on this one slow pool. Like you're not, you know, an MPI barrier is waiting to write and it has to wait on it. So we have, there's, there's monitor, you were asking about monitoring, you know, there's monitoring inside the system that keeps track um, at the luster layer that keeps track of the pools degraded or not. But then we have a, a very complicated set of um, poll-based monitoring subsystems and also telemetry uh, subsystems that constantly watch for, um, you know, the big processes that watch for slow drives um, and that'll fail them for you. It'll it'll check smart errors and make sure that a drive's not failed. Um, you know, there's checks that make sure that all the server's memory is, is present and healthy and the power supplies are present and healthy. Um, you know, there's a myriad of, of various checks. I, I think it's on the order of just for Orion, there's, there's something like, uh, I want to say it's about 2,000, 2,500 checks just for the poll-based monitoring. Um, but then we also gather metrics using Telegraph and, um, uh, you know, uh, we use Elasticsearch for our telemetry database to send this data into a database where we can query at any given time, you know, what individual, what kind of performance are individual servers seeing at any given time? If somebody launches a job, we want to see, you know, what's the histogram of the metadata activity for that job or the bandwidth activity for that job. Um, it generates a huge amount of telemetry. Oh yeah, yeah, I would imagine. Let's talk about some of the, you know, just just more esoteric, what's, what's the workload driving or frontier, I guess? Is it uh, physics or, or flow dynamics or? It's actually all over the place. Um, so Oak Ridge is, um, is a, is a the, the Frontier supercomputer is funded by the Department of Energy Office of Science. Um, the Office of Science 
um, I mean, basically the system's allocated by three different allocation programs. The primary one um, being the Insight program, where basically it's it, it allows users to put in, um, potential users to, to put in a, an application for hours on the system. And we have a science director that will add a, a team of people that, that look at these applications and um, you know decide whether or not they're going to grant time on the machine. So since this is an open call, you know you'll see um, you'll see folks from you know fluid dynamics, astrophysics, um, physics codes, chemistry codes. Uh, we even partner with some some um, industry partners sometimes where they may want to to model the airflow over a wing of an airplane or, um, you know, with, it's, it's all over the place. So with that, the obvious question is injection of data. Like when I'm thinking about moving petabytes of data into the system to run my analysis against, what are the various methods of, of users of the frontier to ingest data for their projects into the system? So do you mean like the the styles of like the no, power no, no. So, so I guess there's there's two questions here. You know, a lot of these workloads would be generating the data directly rather than ingesting data from someplace else. But there's certainly a lot of work that would require, you know, massive amounts of data to be, I don't know, like weather simulation data. You'd want you'd want to you know suck up all the weather history for the last ten years or something like that. Uh, that would be a lot of data coming into the system. How does that work? Is that what you're asking, Keith? Yeah. Th th actually, that's a great example, weather uh, weather modeling. So, like, for example, with weather modeling specifically, you know, it's important to understand, you you know, you're constantly, you would constantly have a stream of, um, of sensor data coming from satellites and airplanes and ground weather stations. You know, there's a, all of that data would be, basically, you'd see a constant stream of that coming into the system. But also for a weather model, uh, you don't just launch a weather mo weather model with just the sensor data. There's a there's a sense of uh, you where you basically the output from your old your last job is used as um, to sort of train the new model, the new run that you're about to make. So you take a combination of this what they call cycling data um, in addition to the sensor data, and it it can give you an accurate forecast. Um, so it's a combination of a constant stream of sensor data, but also being able to to write out your cycling data at the end of the job and then have your next job pick up both of those things and create new output. So are you streaming that data from partners that have like Internet 2 or different connectivity? What's the connectivity coming in? So actually, um, we don't do production weather modeling on Frontier specifically. We, we do operate systems for both um, uh, for NOAA, um, National Center for right. um, Ocean, yeah, um, and we also operate systems for uh, we do weather prediction. Uh, but so anyway, so yes, that what well how we, how that works for us is we actually just upgraded to a um, 400 gig link on um, ESnet, um, which allows us to connect with our our partner sites that will deliver this data to us. And then honestly, many of our other users too. You know, the the DOE is a is a computing ecosystem. So we have um, very high bandwidth to the other DOE labs, um, like, like Argonne National Lab and um, uh, NERSC over in uh, the Bay Area. Yeah, I can, see the, I, can, I can easily see that web uh, having some pretty high speed layer two connectivity to each other and being able to ingest data 
and uh, connect with other partners. Back to kind of the uh, luster conversation. Where does luster in and kind of Oak Ridge begin when it comes to the overall capability of the underly? Are you guys just constantly updating the luster product project with things that you've learned or uh, is luster pretty much, you know, uh, uh, what you take that component and just build separate components to supporting systems around it or a combination of both? Um, so I think if I'm understanding the question correctly, so Luster is an open source file system right. um, it's operating on OpenSFS. Um, and, you know, there's multiple companies that that contribute to that code, including, you know, WAM Cloud and um, uh, which is part of DDN. Um, and then also like HPE is a significant contributor and many, many others. Um, but so basically, and and since it's open source, you know, individual sites can de can develop features that they want. Um, so, like for example, uh, Oak Ridge National Laboratory, we partnered with um, WAM Cloud to develop this progressive file layouts feature. And you know, the gatekeeper for the code works for WAM Cloud. So you know, there's uh, there's best practices on you know on on coding and the way that they want everything to be structured. And so you know, we worked with them to develop this feature. Um, so, but then there also may be other features that Oak Ridge doesn't care about, but other sites may fund or other companies may fund. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah. So partially. So I guess the question is the, are you folks contributing that code back to Luster? So as people are listening to this and they're thinking about building multi-petabyte systems, how much of the, uh, effort is, you know, kind of Oak Ridge took, you know, took it to uh i'm sorry luster out of the box out of the open source box got you 80 percent there now you've had to partner with these folks and get you the other 20 percent there or you've just contributed all back to the project and you know if i have the team i can build exactly what you folks have built yes yeah, so um we actually so orion um the file system was bought from hpe and hpe as a company they will take what, what is upstream and luster, and they may make some additions, modifications and enhancements to it. Um, but we actually have an agreement with HPE where if they're making enhancements for us for this, um, basically they have to push those, those features and uh, patches upstream within mm. a certain amount of time. Um, because, you know, as a, as a national lab, we, uh, you know, we're taxpayer funded and we want to make sure that you know, the people paying for, paying for us to do this work are able to reap the benefits of, um, of their funding. So, uh, you know, we we have our own in-house Luster developers as well that do modify. Um, actually, James Simmons um, at Oak Ridge, he he is, I believe, um, he's in the in the top three, I believe, like top contributors to the Luster code individually. Um, and you know, everything that he he touches makes its way upstream. Right. So, right. to answer your question, the goal is that everything that we do makes it upstream, so everybody can benefit from it. Huh. Uh, very interesting. You mentioned uh, somewhere in there about learning and stuff like that. Are you guys doing a lot of uh, AI kinds of workloads at, at the labs as well? Absolutely. Um, on both our Summit and Frontier computers. Um, now, the I, now Orion won't, usually isn't directly used for AI. Um, generally, what the AI workload that we see looks like is um, lots of small random reads, which a parallel file system struggles with. Um, so we actually have another tier of storage 
um, on our on that's actually node local storage that that our AI users will um, request access to. And, you know, that's that's where their workload will operate from. And so basically, each one of our compute nodes. Let's let's use Frontier as an example. Um, I, I believe it's 1.6 terabyte NVMEs. There's two of them in each compute node um, that get rated together with a RAID zero. And um, so anyways, so that that will provide, you know, a few terabytes of space where they can copy data from the parallel file system, run all their computations and then copy it back. And so when you say parallel file system, you're talking Orion, Luster and the whole shebang, right? Exactly. Yeah, where each file can be modified by, you know, byte level locking allows different clients um, to be able to modify the same file at the same time. Um, and that, get, that gets really complicated when you have you know, potentially 10,000 nodes trying to access the same file at the same time. But if you have a copy of it on each node, that's actually easy. Um, yeah. It's everybody Pretty doing this. Parallelizable. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. also kind of curious about the culture of the customers you support. I've spent a little bit time of uh, supporting research for folks. And I've found the, the kind of the CS uh, knowledge to be a wide range from folks who are really, really good at data analysis in general, and then folks who uh, are good at data analysis, but really don't care about the infrastructure layer at any, at, at any concept. But when you're doing really big projects like this, you have to care about the details. So how do you bridge the gap from people solving really big problems, but without the infrastructure knowledge to know, you know, what size, what's the uh, optimum size for striping files, et cetera, details that they just, you know, in the weeds about, about the storage system. Sure. So we, um, I feel like we're actually pretty good at our documentation. So that's usually kind of our first place to go. However, we do have an entire group of folks. Um, it's our scientific computing group at the lab that supports that, that insight program that I was mentioning before, where the goal uh, for, for this group is to take um, domain scientists, like let's say you have an astrophysicist um, that has this code where they wanna do this really exciting thing. Um, but, you know, like you mentioned, you know, they may, they may not be computer scientists necessarily. Um, and, you know, so we have this scientific computing group that is um, domain scientists that are also computer scientists to help them tune their codes, port their codes to GPUs, make sure that they're using the IO system in a way that that you know doesn't bring it to a halt, for example, or impact other users. So we have a whole group of people that do this for us. Mm, interesting. You mentioned that uh, the the data protection layer is uh, was a ZFS rate D rate two, I guess. Yes. So is ZFS behind Luster or how's that work? Yeah, so Luster, um, so like I mentioned about the OSTs before, the OSTs are um, you can format those. So basically, like each of the each of the servers has um, a set of ZFS Z pools, like RAID sets. Um, but each of those RAID sets can be ZFS. They can be um, there's some if you're familiar with EXT, um, right. there's a, a Luster specific. It has a few expansions on EXT, but basically it's an EXT4 file system called LDISC-FS. There's different file system like um, layers, the file system RAID sets that you can put that Luster has a, is a superset of. Um, so Luster uses those underlying file systems as the store for the data. Right, 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 right. 
Um, so how, how do you upgrade something like this? If you've got, I don't know, 450 OST servers, if that's the right number, and, and you decide you want to roll out a new feature of Luster or something like that, how does that transpire in this environment? Uh, very complicated. <laughs> uh, we we always with one of these large systems, um, you know, the, the systems are are made of building blocks. Um, like I just mentioned, there's four four hundred and fifty server pairs, um, but you know, so there's two hundred twenty five um, server pairs. I'm sorry, four hundred fifty servers, two hundred twenty five pairs, and so we have a single pair that we call our TDS, our test and development system. So anytime that we want to perform an upgrade. We go and test this upgrade that also has a, a computer con connected to it. That's very that's a TDS of the um, of the of frontier. Um, so we'll do this. We'll perform end to end upgrades of both. Run a set of regression tests um, to ensure that we're not going to you know cause a uh, instability or a performance degradation um, or any of those sorts of things. So we'll test everything on our test and development system. Um, but the problem is is that. Proving that it works on a single unit is not Versus the same. Two hundred twenty-five. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we don't usually do live updates unless there's something very specific that's low impact that we're trying to test. Usually, it involves taking a full outage um, that we will. Uh, usually, we do them on Tuesdays because you know Monday is planning day. Tuesday is you do the upgrade, and then you have if something goes terribly wrong, you have a few days to work it out um, <laughs> before before the, you know the weekend. Um, so yeah, we'll 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 run this at small scale, and then we'll do the upgrade on the large system. And the intention is always to have the infrastructure set up so that you can roll back. So Orion runs on all stateless um, images, so we can perform this upgrade, upgrade to the new image. If it doesn't go well, or we find an instability or something else that we've introduced, um, we just reboot the system back into the old image, and it's exactly in the state it was in, you know, earlier that day before the upgrade. So the one thing that isn't stateless is the control plane. So how do you guys back up the control plane itself? So we actually, um, I guess, in, in terms of system administration, you know, there's the the phrase, I guess, you know, treat your servers like cattle, not pets, right? Uh, mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, our philosophy there is that, you know, we want to have the recipe to regenerate the control that the, we call it our management system. It's the cluster management component. Um, so basically we use Puppet for configuration management where any change we make goes through Puppet, which is backed by Git. So if I'm gonna go change a, a, a tunable on a, on a system, I go make that change in Puppet and then it filters down into the image and then to the compute uh, and then to the individual storage nodes. Um, but Puppet is fully backed up, like very, very, um, and actually, you know, every every sysadmin has like essentially a backup on their laptops because they have a Git checkout of it. But so that component's backed up. Our images are backed up to our backup system. The recipe we use to um, put the operating system on our management cluster um, is is also backed up. So basically, if if my management server dies or something really bad happens, I can just throw another one in place and then regenerate it within a couple hours um, and get the system back online. That's pretty impressive, actually. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking of, of how closely this is is to like a hyperscaler environment. But you also have the I don't I guess it's a luxury of not having the same SLA as a hyperscaler. So you can take this model in which, you know, downtime can happen. Maybe not, you know, the preference, but downtime can happen. 
Right. Yeah. And I think one major difference too is that, um, you know, hyperscalers, I think a lot of times are trying to solve more distributed problems where we're trying to solve scale problems. Um, so with a hyperscaler, it, it'll be important. Um, I, I guess from a hyperscaler's perspective, it's going to be important to have very, very high uptime. You want to have flexibility, right? Like you may use other like Kubernetes or something to make sure that if you have a resource that needs to be running, it's always running somewhere, right? Where for us, our systems are relatively static. So the complexity of how, you know, like we put this system in place and the way it's designed, it's not, you can't really change it and still keep the same performance attributes. Um, so we we put it in place, we accept it, we get our users on it, we use it for five, six years, and then we move on to our next one. Um, yeah. Where a hyperscaler is constantly changing and that they need to have a flexible environment that we don't necessarily have to have. Ours is about performance and um, data integrity not as and, and uptime actually is a huge consideration of ours you know we generally these at scale systems um the one that we are still running in production that'll be going away later this year you know it still sees you know 98 99% uptime you know it's very good for a system of its scale yeah and uh, so specifically you don't have to worry about the clients needs changing constantly where you know one day there needs to be bare metal holes another day these need to be virtualized holes or uh yet another day these holes are running containers the use cases are pretty static in the sense that you know you're providing the service you confirm you conform your workload or application to the infrastructure versus the infrastructure conforming to the workload exactly that's exactly right. Huh. Yeah, yeah. So, so, Jesus, ah, it's pretty amazing stuff. Uh, is this is this currently running today, or is this something that's uh, in in the process of being built up, or what's the status yeah. of it? I guess, Dustin. Orion is in production as of um, I'm trying to remember the exact date. It was in April. Um, but, you know, we've before we put the system in production, you go through a huge amount of, you know, acceptance process, you know, making sure that every end to end from a functionality, performance, stability, that you run through a huge number of tests to ensure the system's ready for users. But we also put users on the system. You know, we have a set of what we call friendly users um, that we put on. It's like, hey, you know, we know that, <laughs> yeah, it's like you have a file per process workload that's very hard on the system. Can you test it and share your results with us or let us work with you along the way? Or do you have a huge shingle shared file workload, which is one of the areas that we really want to make sure to exercise and works well? Um, can you get on the system and run this for us? And honestly, the feedback, even, even when the system is being used, like I said, you know, we've seen 10, 11, 12, uh, terabytes per second from it, even in a mixed environment with lots of users in the system, our users are still seeing, you know, I've, I've seen 7.9 terabytes a second. So I think, yes, the system's in production, it's in use. And so far, I mean, I, our users love it. So I guess with the, have, have you, it's a relatively new system. So, you know, it's like bringing out a, uh, your fast sports car and it's, it seems fast for like the first year. The sports car performance hasn't changed, but the user's expectations have. This is what us operators always have to deal with. Uh, and I don't think you guys have gotten to the point where you're, where users are complaining that it's slow yet, but you have a unique system and that it is a shared system. So do you have to deal with noisy neighbors yet? Yes. Um, and it depends on which file system. Different file systems have different um, architectural 
considerations that can change the, the blind spots, right? For or like areas that, that you may get, um, you know, like let, let's say for example, let's say that I have a have one user that is is very friendly and you know they may have let's say a file per node um for their workload right and let's say their 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 job is 6000 nodes now let's also say i have another user that is using the same metadata subsystem that has it's using 9400 nodes but they have you know 64 processes per node and um you know that their their workload would be very very different and could potentially you know, um, interact. Yeah. It would have a negative interaction with that other job that's that's maybe doing something a little less intensive. So that is always the case, or always potential. Um, but the way we solve that is, you know, I mentioned that we have ten petabytes of metadata. That's actually spread across forty metadata servers, and each of our programs are randomly assigned to an end of, uh, to a, a metadata server. And so what that allows us to do is to basically break up. The, the the problem domain. And so if one user is misbehaving, it'll only impact a subset of other projects and not all of them. So, so the system will remain online. Effectively, a metadata server is like a file system in your parlance then, is that? Um, well, the metadata subsystem actually is, um, is, is composed of ZFS file systems also the same as like the object storage systems. So it's, um, it is the, it is where all the, it is the part of Lustre that aggregate, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out the right way to put this. It's not a file system of its own. The metadata subsystem is made of smaller file systems that service the broader Lustre file system, if that makes but, sense. But you mentioned two things here, Dustin. You mentioned that, uh, number one, you know, as jobs come in, they're randomly assigned to a metadata server. And number two... Uh, not the jobs, sorry, the projects. The projects, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> this isn't like an automated orchestration system. So when I submitted to uh, use... Uh, raise language job when I submit a job it, it is a project is a customer or it's a, a client job, doing right. a thing and they're randomly assigned to right so let's, let's say that let's say that I want to solve a um a numer problem. numeric weather prediction or yeah astrophysics yeah. problem yeah yeah you know I'll come in and I'll put a proposal in saying hey um astrophysics let's use an example like let's say I want to model the the expansion of the universe and somebody's like, cool, yeah, we'll create AST021. That'll be your astrophysics project name. And so they will have an area of the file system, like slash Luster, Orion, AST021. And that directory, AST021, where it's not just one person, it could be a whole group of people right. that work in that project. That project itself would be dedicated, or not dedicated, it would, it would be on a single metadata server that may be shared by other users. And then do you guys have the ability to kind of move the projects to metadata servers based on uh, use or noisy neighbors or something like that? You can, um, but then you would have to move the metadata to the other metadata server. So you would actually, it would be a micro, the, it's not like you could just, you, you would it have, have to be worth to the it. effort. Like it yeah. had to be two long-term yeah. projects that obviously collide with each other and like, okay, this yeah. is worth that effort. Well, and, and usually what we try to do instead is we try to, if we identify, like I mentioned, you know, we have a very, very robust telemetry system. You know, if we identify a user as being problematic, 
um, we will work with those users and be like, okay, what are you doing? What are you trying to do? Like, let's figure out how to make it so that this isn't happening. I, I don't want to like put users in jail or yeah, right. put them in file system jail and move them <laughs> off. I'd rather just help them to do what they need, what they're trying to do. And more effectively on the Ryan and stuff like that. Right. Huh, huh, huh. So speaking of, you know, kind of Frontier and Orion, these project, these massive project names, this is obviously not something that you folks thought about three months ago and deployed today. How long was the planning process of the design prior to building out, you know, the? I would imagine it was iterations of the production system and then the final production system? What, what, give us a time skip. So usually, I mean, it's it's years. Um, so like, for example, we just deployed Orion and, you know, we're already talking about our next gen file system. Um, like we're designing it now. Um, but it's but usually what that is, is, you know, like we have, um, you know, the my group at the lab, you know, there's the first year of a system is usually spent um, stabilizing it, which actually as of since Orion was put in production, it's had hundred percent scheduled uptime. So it's been very good so far, actually. Great. Um, but you know, when you when you get real users on it and not synthetic benchmarks, you expose problems. So we'll spend the first year exposing problems on the current system while concurrently working on building our next one. Now, before you can build your next one, you need to evaluate different products. So we'll reach out to vendors and say, what are you thinking about doing in three, four, five years? You know, and if it's something that has, let's say they have an early version of it, it's like, okay, we want to buy one of those and we put it in what we call our test bed. That's so it has every generation of all these different um, storage systems from all these different vendors and we'll put it through its paces and under, understand where its weaknesses are. Um, you know, what are there things that we can work with that vendor to improve? Um, and then, you know, we put out a, a call for proposals, right? And these, you know, we'll, we'll, our, we, we gather our use cases from our users. We turn those into requirements. We turn those requirements into a, um, an RFP. And then our vendors will respond to this re request for proposals. Um, and, and after we receive that, I mean, you can still be a couple years before you, you know, take delivery of the final system, um, integrate it. Uh, and then you have to go through an acceptance phase and you get to get users on the system. And then you go through it, you start all over again for your next gen system. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. It's usually a five-year life cycle. Yeah. Per, per, per file system. I saw something like this. Orion is a five-year lifetime is what you're saying. Uh, five to six. Yeah. Okay. And, and it depends on a lot of things. You know, the Orion is just one file system we operate. You know, we have uh, 12 production file systems. Right, 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 right. And are the kind of Frontier and Orion tight at the hip together? Or are these separate things? So Orion may go away and frontier will connect to yet a you know the next file system or are they are the life cycles tied together they are i would probably say they're generally tied together but they're not exclusively tied together like for example let's say that we let's say that orion's running great and we think we can squeeze another year out of it you know it may be that frontier goes away and orion stays active and is used by other systems or it could be that we don't want to to marry the next procurement to a with a file system. And so it could be that the next gen compute system, whatever's past frontier, ends up mounting Orion for its first year of production while we integrate the new file system. Yeah. They're not necessarily married. Right. right. I, I do not envy that process. <laughs> <laughs> it's very complicated. <laughs> uh, 
All right. Well, listen, Dustin. So, Keith, any last questions for Dustin before we close? No, we could. If I ask more questions, we can go on for another hour. Right? Yeah, this, yeah. Is, this has been <laughs> extremely interesting. All right. Dustin, is there anything that you'd like to say to our listening audience before we close? Um, I guess I just mentioned, you know, if you're if you have interest in this, um, you know, we we actually we participate heavily in the uh, supercomputing conference, uh, the Lustre users group, the Cray users group. You know, you can find any um, we have. You know, Oak Ridge is very active in those spaces, both from the compute, storage, networking, all uh, you know, facilities. Obviously, operating these systems, you know, you're we're talking. I mean, we're talking 30 megawatts of power for a single system. There's a lot of complexity there as well. But there's information about all this kind of cool stuff happening at the at the lab at all those places. Okay, great, great. Well, this has been great, Dustin. Thank you very much for being on our show today. Absolutely, it's a great and meeting with you. And that's it for now. Bye, Dustin, and bye, Keith. Murray. Until next time. Next time, we will talk to another system storage technology person. Any questions you want us to ask, please let us know. And if you enjoy our podcast, tell your friends about it. Please review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as this will help get the word out. <laughs>